Welcome to the Officials Podcast, the show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing in sport. We bring you unique perspectives, interesting guests and topical conversations. Our aim is to help individuals, groups and teams across sport and industry share and collaborate on ideas and insights. We invite you to follow our journey. Get involved through Facebook, the Officials Podcast, Welcome to the third instalment of Umpire Referee, the official's podcast, a show where we talk about umpiring and refereeing across sports. I am your host, Chris Donlan, and joining me in the umpire's room of two of the best in their respective fields, the first female AFL Grand Final goal umpire, Chelsea Roffey, and the highly decorated multiple-time Grand Final and All-Australian umpire, Matt Stevick. Hi guys, welcome, and thanks for joining me again. How did we go round one? Thanks, Donners. Uh, good to be here again. Round one, we, Chelsea and I had uh, Melbourne and Geelong at the MCG. Great game, close game, went down to the wire and um, certainly enjoyed it. Um, tough opening round, but um, yeah, looking forward to week two. Footy's back. It was great to have a, yeah, a, a ripping match to, to start off with. And yeah, I think everyone's just pleased to, to have the uh, season roll out. Yeah, I was under the lid at Eddie had. It was very steamy, very hot. And I was almost glad to hear or read about Alan Richardson's comments about the players being exhausted because I certainly was. The game was fast and, like I said, just real sticky under the uh, under the lid. And hopefully as the uh, weather sort of gets a bit cooler, it won't be so oppressive. Is that a change, Donners? Because I know last year the roof has been open. Well, it was open it was on Friday night, which surprised yeah. me. Normally, I think the AFL have a rule around about if the game starts after four o'clock or somewhere around that period, that the roof should always be shut. But I think it probably added to the spectacle because as you know, in those warm days, roof closed, it becomes very greasy and quite often they'll water the field before the game as well, which just amplifies the, uh, the conditions. So yeah, I was surprised to see it open, but I thought it just added to the spectacle and it was quite nice too, just to look outside and see the bright lights of Melbourne. Well, thanks guys. A reminder, you can get involved in the conversation by sending us a question or comment through our Facebook page, the official's podcast. We'll pick a question from our Facebook page and answer it here. While you're there, please like and share our page and rate this podcast on the platform you download or stream your podcasts from. It's with great pleasure now that we welcome our very special guest into the umpire's room, Brian Rowe, currently the chairman of the IAAF Competition Rules Committee. Brian has also worked in athletics for over 35 years and previously held the role of competitions manager at Athletics Australia, competition manager at the Sydney 2000 Olympic Games for athletics competition, along with other roles with the IAAF and at national and state levels. Brian has also been involved in many Olympic Games, World Championships and Commonwealth Games. For many years, Brian has been heavily involved in grassroots football and athletics, particularly in Tasmania, where he resides, and he's wonderfully qualified to talk about sports at all levels. So welcome, Brian. Thanks for joining us in the umpire's room. Thanks, uh, Chris. Good to be with you, and congratulations, guys, for this initiative, which I'm sure uh, people will get a bit out of. Well, thank you. Look, before we get into our topic today, Brian, which is around technology in sport and how it's changed the role, especially of officials, I mean, it we need to talk about the current issue that's facing Australian sport at the moment. Do you have a view on what's sort of happened in South Africa? What's your observations? Well, I think the people who were least challenged by it were the on-field officials. They seemed to be completely in control of the situation, dealt with the 
the matter pretty well, I thought. Um, seemed to challenge just about everyone else, uh, the administrators of the game, the administrators of Australian cricket and certainly the, uh, the players. Um, the other people that didn't seem to be challenged were the, the fans and cricket nuts, certainly in Australia, who normally when these sort of things happen, there's difference of views. There was just a unanimous decision that it was wrong. Yeah, I, look, I myself felt ashamed. And last week we spoke about sledging in sport and we touched on this thing that was simmering away, especially around fair play. I got the feeling that it was this watershed moment that finally that, you know, all the things that were happening, um, this was the this was bubbling underneath the surface and, and this just came up and, and now we're dealing with decades, if you like, of, of poor sportsmanship and culture, which seems to underpin the, the issue. It's interesting because if you look at cricket worldwide at any given time, you're probably talking no more than 100 players playing at the highest level, at least in the, in the men's game. If you look at a, a lot of other sports at the highest level in the world, whether it's an Olympic sport or other team games, there's a lot more people. So you, you get a difference of views. It's hard harder to keep a, a bad practice in the closet when you've got more people involved. And certainly if that sort of thing happened in athletics or other sports which I'm involved in at Olympic level, other, other players would have called it out long ago. And isn't it interesting, you know, I guess there was the admission um, that of what had happened from, from the leaders themselves and reference to the spirit of the laws or the spirit of the game, but still, I guess, what's I think quite gobsmacking for, for everybody, um, just sort of seeing how things unfolded, is the fact that there was this admission, but, but not really taking the responsibility to, I guess, initially stand down or, or just own the issue. It's, it's quite surprising that it can still be considered a grey area for those who are in the middle of the game. Well, a bit of a segue today, Chelsea. They were done by technology, effectively, by the the preponderance of TV cameras and, and uh, not just in this game, but it would appear in previous games and they were being watched and they were caught. I just want to reflect again on, you mentioned the uh, the role of the umpires in, on the day. And my observation was that the umpires involved appeared to be very calm and composed and they didn't inflame what was going to be potentially a a massive issue in, in sport, um, and it's particularly here in Australia. I mean, we've had the, the Prime Minister comment on the issues. Can you tell us what, how, why you think it's important the umpires manage that and maintain a level of composure through that process? If they'd been uh, aggressive or demonstrative, the worst possible scenario for the sport and for the moment would have been the reaction of the South African crowd. We'd already seen them during this series on two or three occasions involve themselves uh, very significantly in the way the game was being panned out, whether it was with the uh, Sonny Bill Williams masks or, or otherwise taunting, taunting the players. Um, uh, we saw when Australia went out to bat in the second innings, the crowd reaction, that was I guess expected and normal but if the umpires had it been demonstrative or colourful or whatever at the time then who knows what might have happened. And I guess they had to get on with the game as well and there was going to be another ball bowled after that so I think just looking at the reaction from Smith after that it was almost like oh okay that that's done let's get on with the game so I think that that in itself um, allowed for the game to actually continue now obviously we know what transpired after that and we, you know we understand but yeah, I think that's really important. And the other thing that's important, um, Chris, is the um, that they obviously had the trust in the person who was in their ear telling them what had happened. 
um, and what they needed to follow up on. And you know, perhaps some things we'll talk about later today with the developments in, in, in international athletics. You have to have confidence in your, your, your fellow officials, not just the ones that are, you're on the field together, as, as you guys know, but the people who, who, who have got a different, different perspective and aspect. And I think, I mean, my personal view on the situation, we talked a lot about last uh, podcast around the spirit of the game and the officials can only do so much in terms of implementing the rules and the laws of the game as as accurately as possible. But I think in cricket, the integrity of the sport and certainly be that as administrators, coaches, the players need to have greater responsibility in the conduct of their sport. And I mean, my view is the integrity of, of cricket internationally is is laughable. Not to excuse Smith and the Australian team's actions uh, for any moment, but if you look back over time, there's been uh, many examples of ball tampering and other sorts of behaviour which has continued to be, I guess, accepted in the sport. And for me, it's no surprise really that we're talking about and we have a situation that has unfolded recently. And I think, yeah, it's just, I suppose when you, you talk about those, uh, if you do have a, a lead up of, of incidents and things that I suppose, you know, we, we talk about the culture. That's what we spent a lot of time talking about culture and spirit um, last week. Um, I guess it's those those little things that can create um, a culture where things can get out of hand and, and things like this can happen. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting to look at the role of the official. I, I certainly um, am interested in hearing Brian's thoughts today. Thanks, guys. Before we unpack today's topic around technology in sport and its implications for athletics officials generally, let's go to our Facebook page and answer a question from Shane Downey. And Brian, the question is, is there an overuse of technology in decision-making in sport? Well, certainly my experience in the last 30 years in athletics is that there's good technology and there's bad technology. Um, if you take the advances in technology in, in athletics, whether it's uh, electronic timing, photo finish, chip timing for road races, GPS tracking, which enables people to follow road races, the introduction of, of Hawkeye uh, in uh, refereeing decisions, um, most of these things are, are really good technologies. They speed up the result service. They enable us to deliver a fairer and uh, more accurate result in what's essentially an objective sport, who can run the quickest, jump the highest or furthest or throw the furthest. Uh, we, li we like it to be as objective as possible. And technology's been generally very good for us. But then at the same time, you know, one of our sports, the least sub uh, objective of all race walking, um, the, the introduction of some technology has been really bad for it because it, 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 it really places the sport or that part of the sport into question because you, know, you have lots of slow-mo photographs taken or, 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 or visi uh, vision taken of, of walkers with both their feet off the ground. Um, that doesn't look great. But generally... In, for our sport, technology's been great. Yeah, thanks for that. Look, my view on the use of technology in sport, um, really understanding what the purpose of the technology you're employing and how, how and why you want to employ that, that technology. And I think if we think about overuse, I don't think there's an overuse per se. I think that it can be used for purposes that it's not intended to be used for. So if we think about achieving 100% accuracy, 
technology will always outperform humans because technology is not predisposed to the same biases that humans are. Um, and if you think, I thought about the three sort of decision-making uh, processes, if you like. There's sole responsibility for the of the umpire. So, you know, when I'm out umpiring the game of football, I have sole responsibility around that, around the decision-making. There's umpire-assisted by technology. So it might be something around goal-line technology. Or there's you know, technology completely responsible. Say, for example, Hawkeye. And I think tennis is the best example of this because it removes any human element around the decision-making process. You know, it uses triangulation to sort of track where the ball is going and then it's very binary. It's either in or it's out. Um, and so when you think about the implementation of those that involve both the umpire and technology, they're susceptible to errors, again, because you've got the human behind the controls making some sort of decision. So for me, I, I'm not sure that's an overuse. It's probably a misuse of the technology. And then there's obviously trade-offs. So, you know, you slow the game down, which can impact the bottom line. Um, you remove the human element and the connections that happen between athlete and officials, which I think is really important. But also, I think there's this part that widens the gap between both professional sports and amateur sports. As you introduce more technology in the professional sports, it leaves behind the amateur sports. And they're very, or they're very slow to actually take up the technology because of the barriers of cost. So... Yeah, I, I have a slightly different view around it. It's overuse, and I don't think it's really overuse. It's more around we're misusing it for the purpose that it was set out for. I think inherent perhaps in Shane's question is um, the time it sometimes takes for the technology to be used, and you know maybe that's regarded as overuse. We try to avoid that um, in, in athletics where we leave most of the decisions pending and then move on and come back come back to them. The only area where that's a problem is, is obviously at the start of races and um, we, we've put a number of processes in place to make sure that doesn't, um, that doesn't happen. But then again, for example, at the recent um, Australian Championships, there was a, a, a decision at the start which took forever to to resolve and, and wasn't great um, and there was technology involved in that. So where's the line then, Brian, in terms of uh, obviously you want technology to be efficient but you also want it to be fair. Um, what's more important, you, you know, thinking about obviously audience and spectators, um, you've got broadcasters who are relying on the technology and then there's the participants and, and creating the fair outcome. Um, where's that line um, as an official or someone who's overseeing this process in trying to make sure that all the stakeholders are, I guess, you know, being looked after and you're finding that balance? Well, um, as an officials educator, as an international referee, as somebody who leads the, the process of uh, writing the rules, fairness is always the number one, particularly to go back to the comment I made earlier about athletics being essentially objective. And uh, so fairness becomes absolutely critical and always number one for us. And Brian, tell us about the World Indoors recently in Birmingham, um, the recent introduction of Hawkeye, can you give the listeners a bit of an insight into what went on over there and the process, uh, well, certainly the use of the technology and the officials' involvement in that particular example? Well, at the World Indoor Championships in Birmingham, which are conducted on a, uh, in the case of the circular events, on a 200-metre banked track, a bit, bit like a cycling velodrome for those people who are not familiar with indoor athletics, and uh, there were a large number of disqualifications for running on or inside the lane line. 
and I think it was more than 16 in the end, including very colourfully the whole of one heat in the men's 400 oh. metres, oh. uh, where everyone was disqualified. Um, and uh, there were probably three reasons for this. One, uh, the indoor track being used in Birmingham was perhaps a little steeper in angle than most indoor tracks. Secondly, um, that the indoor circuit is no longer as extensive as it used to be and there are less indoor meets leading up to competition, so athletes are therefore... Um, less use and condition to running on a bank track. Uh, but thirdly and most importantly is the introduction of our um, video technology and we use the Hawkeye product at the moment. And whereas before, if there was any doubt using the, the human eye, we always gave the benefit of doubt to the athlete who was in question. Uh, now, uh, in terms of running on the line at least, um, Hawkeye almost in every case will give us a very clear decision whether they've infringed the rules. So it is very black and white. Uh, and uh, the, the question is now whether that rule is too tough. So, yes, technology now means that we can be very black and white and objective, but then the broader question is, is this a good look for the sport and is it really fair to have such a black and white rule? I was going to say, I mean, putting a a hairline on the on the line you know one stride in a 400 meter track is that worthy of either a disqualification or removal of from a race well since 1981 that's been the rules prior prior to that we had some discretion in the referee and there was quite an elaborate table in the rules which determined whether you had had a material advantage or not but there are some people particularly the advocates of that rule that just like they say you can't start before the gun, is that it's part of the skill of the event that you've got to stay within your lane. And if you don't, um, then um, you, you should be disqualified. And, and then the question since 1981 has always been, oh, well, if it's just one touch, you know, should you be DQ'd for that if it's two touches, three touches or, or whatever? But, you know, we're now... Um, uh, the technical committee of the IAAF is engaging on a discussion process and we, we, we would like to hear before we come up with our uh, new iteration of the rule, if there is to be one, we'd like to know what um, people's views are. Is the technology at a level where you can determine exactly how much of an advantage it, it is? Like has it been translated into, you know, if a, a participant, you know, touches the line over this period of, of time it, it equates to this you know saving of time for their overall race or is it that um, I suppose is it at that level or not quite? Well certainly the old rule before 1981 assumed that because it had you know if you touch twice then it's x meters or if you if you touch five times it's further or whatever and then they would look and see how much you won the race by and then decide whether you'd had a material advantage or not. Uh, it didn't affect the placings. You're either DQ'd or you weren't if you if you had a material advantage. Uh, not like horse racing, where it's just relative to the to the other uh, the other horses in the race. So Brian, we've got the Commonwealth Games coming up in, on the Gold Coast shortly. Will Hawkeye technology be used in its full capacity during those games? I think we would have liked to have seen it being used, but. I th if my understanding is correct, when the TV host broadcaster agreement was written for the Gold Coast, which was before Athletics adopted the Hawkeye technology, um, they agreed to do it in a different way. So we'll be relying on uh, 
the host broadcaster providing a whole series of, of channels and um, it'll be slightly different but still a way of, um, of backing up the decision of the judges. All right. Thanks, guys, and thank you to Shane Downey again for that question around the overuse of technology in sport. A reminder, you can get involved and ask, to ask us a question through our Facebook page, The Officials Podcast. Brian, I mentioned in your bio that you've been involved in athletics, sports for over 35 years and a lot would have changed over that period. What's really changed over those 35 years in your involvement? Well, one thing, Chris, that hasn't changed is that, uh, interestingly, in, in international athletics, all of the officials are still volunteers. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that may be something that changes shortly. But what has changed in that 35 years is the level of professionalism that's expected of the people who are playing the key roles at the highest level. And uh, it's only... 20 years that we've been engaging in worldwide education of officials. It was assumed before then that somehow magically people from 200 plus countries around the world would magically understand what every rule meant. Uh, so we now have um, quite a, a uh, elaborate international education program. We now have an international appointments program and uh, you know, initially through the politics of sport, I think we tried to be all things to all people. Uh, but in our most recent um, uh, international referees assessment, we reduced the size of the panel again. And it's about getting um, consistency of decisions and of better equipping the people that are going to make, you know, very serious decisions about the biggest moment in many athletes' lives, uh, getting it as correctly as possible. Mm, right. And what's been the most significant rule change that you've you've been either involved in or or even recently in your role as chairman of the IAAF Competition and Rules Committee? Is there anything there that you could share? Probably the changes in the false start rule, uh, particularly the decision to eliminate um, uh, any false starts now. And it's fascinating how after debate and whatever, even at junior level now, there are very few full starts. So athletes and officials adapt, adapt to that pretty quickly. Um, yes, technology is involved in helping us um, make that rule work better, but, but certainly the biggest change and, and the hardest one to, uh, to convince people of um, was definitely changing the full start rule. The, the one that took the longest to change was a really sensible decision uh, or proposal from our Kiwi friends to eliminate the acceleration zone in relays, which was 10 metres and then a 20 metre changeover box. Last year we finally changed it, so you've just got 30 metres. You start inside the box, you change inside the box, reduces the number of officials, reduces the chances of, of judges making mistakes, um, it reduces the conflict between athletes and officials and really doesn't change the spectacle of the event at all. Brian, how did you get involved with sport? I mean, you've clearly got a passion for it. Um, how did this all begin for you? I think for me, probably two things in, in terms of planets aligning. Um, my headmaster, when I started secondary school, had been the announcer at the Melbourne Olympics and he was passionate about 
uh, athletics uh, as a sport. I think he used to employ masters at the school on the basis they could coach an athletics event and then teach something else as a secondary uh, course. Uh, and then I was very lucky in Tasmania because Tasmania's always been in the, the vanguard of officiating in Australia. And, uh, you know, even in the 1970s, there were older officials then who were um, very proud in trying to get two generations on involved in officiating. And uh, it's, a, it's a culture we continue now. Um, I'm, I'm uh, mentoring and encouraging um, young men and women in their uh, 20s to both keep doing the sport and officiate at the same time. And, uh, you know, it gave me, then after, uh, after those yeah, two really good starting points, it was, I guess, a matter of being in the right place at the right time after that. Brian, take us through the famous case involving the US sprinter, arguably at the time the most uh, colourful athlete in the world, John Drummond. Can you take us through what happened during those world championships? John was uh, false started for um, uh, what now would no longer be a full start. So basically um, the technology we were using uh, at the, in those days um, provided a reading which was to be accepted by the starter if there was any movement on the starting blocks at all. And I think it's pretty clear and most people accept that in John's case what he did was he re reduced the pressure uh, on his uh, blocks without actually moving the foot off it. So it, it registered in terms of the technology. But that was the rule in those days. And um, uh, But he didn't understand what he'd actually been uh, pinged for, if you like to use the colloquial terminology. It was difficult because the starter only spoke French and he only spoke English. So it never really was explained to him uh, until quite a way through the saga and the world, uh, well, the athletics viewing public and the world watching on TV had to put up with it for quite a long period of time before he actually left the track. In fact, he laid down on it um, in order to uh, stake his case. Yeah, so, Brian, and I know that you were involved in actually helping usher away John from the track just to help our officials, especially on listening to this podcast, I mean, you're about to walk into a pretty potentially hostile situation. What's your mindset? What are you thinking, saying, feeling, doing to make sure that the right outcome is achieved? I think it's always important, Chris, where you can to state the reason why uh, an athlete's being penalised or, or a footballer in your case. And I, and, and I when you guys are wired up, I often hear you saying the reason for it. And I think that's very important to be proactive in that rather than be reactive. Because if you're reactive and you don't really say terribly much or you don't explain it to the uh, to the player or, or, or the athlete, then there's always going to remain that doubt in their mind. Uh, and certainly in the Drummond case, um, as soon as I explained to him um, the real reason... Um, why the uh, the full start equipment had registered a full start against him, uh, he accepted it because he knew that that's what he'd done. Uh, uh, up until then, you know, he, he was convinced that he was being accused of having left the starting line, which in fact hadn't done. You've touched there on, you know, the, the human element, making sure that the human element is retained in 
um, the role of the official. And I'm just wondering, as this technology continues to evolve and we're going to keep using it um, as it gets better and better, but what's the makeup of the modern official and how important is it to make sure that those human skills are still maintained? Well, Chelsea, in in uh, perhaps a mad rush to accept technology as being the be-all and end-all around that time in 2003, we constructed the rules so that the technology would prevail over uh, just about anything else uh, unless the referee determined that the equipment wasn't working properly. And, uh, you know, that was largely if it was unplugged or, you know, it wasn't reacting to something that actually happened in that race or whatever. Uh, and uh, we learned that that probably wasn't uh, the best way to go, to rely solely on the, the technology. So ironically, perhaps now we've actually gone back to a, a wording of the rule very similar to what we had in the 1940s. And it, it simply says that it's not a false start unless your hands leave the ground or your feet leave the starting blocks. Sometimes, yeah, going back to basics can really help, can't it? And, and that essentially is by the human eye. But now we've advanced into a, uh, a further form of technology and, and to assist the starter and the start referee, which is a new position we now have in deciding whether their decision's right, we have video backup to support them as well. And, and the video referee, that person on the end of the headphones, as we were talking about before, can tell them, um, yeah, your decision's right or nah, maybe you got it wrong. So, Brian, London Olympics 2012, the women's hammer throw, and obviously today we're talking about use of technology and the role and impact on the official. Can you give the listeners an interesting insight into what took place and, uh, and explain what went on there? Well, it, you can take an hour to tell this story, but basically what happened is... The, uh, the last thrower in the third round, Tatiana Lysenko uh, of Russia, threw uh, 81 metres 12. The next thrower, the starter in the, uh, the first thrower in the fourth round, Betty Heidler, also threw 81 metres 12. But the technology company controlling both the results service and the reading of the, the distances by the surveyors theodolite, which we use, electronic distance measuring, had built a fail-safe into their system to say in long throws, that's discus, hammer and javelin, that it's impossible to have two distances exactly the same and if that appears, it must be a failure of the system somewhere. So unfortunately, the guy running the system convinced the referee that it was a mistake. They couldn't uh, re-measure the throw, although, as it turns out, the judge did re-measure it because the 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 theodolite prism was still in place, uh, which and this becomes important later on. So the referee's decision was to give that athlete another throw because it had clearly landed in. It wasn't a foul throw or anything. Unfortunately, her replacement throw was a foul. And so she made an immediate oral protest which couldn't be dealt with until the end of the competition. Um, uh, to cut a long story short, when I was called in as the the, uh, the chief international referee, the first thing I thought would be a sensible thing to do was ask the, uh, the technology people if they could superimpose the landing picture of the two throws on top of one another and then draw an arc across the sector, um, which uh, was a young New Zealand guy working in London for... Um, 
the video company and he did exactly that and, and he was so, just the look on his face when he drew the arc and yes they were on op the tooth rows were on opposite sides of the sector but they were exactly the same uh, then the competition being over, we were able to take the readings out of the surveyor's theodolite, the EDM machine, and sure enough, there were three measurements. They read to a thousandth, even though we only go to a hundredth, and the one of Lysenko was different in thousandths to the two others, which the, the referee, uh, which the judge on the EDM had taken, and then she'd taken it again, to be sure, and they were both the same, but different to the other one. <laughs> so by then, we knew there'd been a mistake. The problem was then convincing the technology company to put the correct result in the system because obviously for them there was a potential loss of, lo yep. loss of fate, uh, fate and whatever. And then rather humorously, I guess, because by then it wasn't critical, but there was a very young official who'd been working in the landing area and he said, what are you guys talking about? And we explained it to him. He said, oh, I actually put a penny in the hole where that, throw landed <laughs> and I said where's the penny now he said still in the in hole, the hole. <laughs> so we were able to also do a um a, a remeasurement on that so we were perfectly involving a tape measure or <laughs> oh we, no we used the theodolite right. again and but I think we used the steel tape as well so we wanted to make sure to go back to your point Chelsea before of fairness that we were doing the right thing because unfortunately the Chinese athlete who thought she was third because Betty Heidler's throw hadn't been counted. She'd already done her lap of honour and it was the only oh. medal, was the only medal China won in track and field in London in 2012. So it was a, it was a huge issue. And, you know, two o'clock in the morning, because this event was at night and by the time this whole process has gone on, um, the Chinese are appealing to the jury on emotional grounds largely. You know, she's done the victory lap. You can't take a bronze medal away, to her, even though it hadn't been presented in that point. But there is there is a silver lining uh, for the Chinese girl because last year in 2017, five years after the event, the the uh, original winner was disqualified for doping in London and the Chinese girl got the bronze medal in any case. Well, thank you, Brian. Thanks. Great, great story. Um, it just goes to show that whilst we don't expect our athletes to be perfectionists we're expecting our officials to so maybe that's something to um to leave with and brian we've known each other for a very long time and you've uh, actively critiqued my performance over many years and often um fairly negatively albeit we we have a joke and a laugh about it at times but you've seen officials in a range of sports uh perform their duties at all different levels what makes in your eyes a great official well, well, obviously, knowledge of their task is number one. And I think, as Chris mentioned before when he was talking about um, uh, the umpires Long and Illingworth in South Africa, you know, you've got to look composed, look control of the situation. You have to be empathetic uh, as well. And, you know, one of the things that, Matt, you and I have discussed over the years is whilst we as athletics officials can always apply the principles of fairness... I think sometimes for um, uh, umpires of game sports like AFL and so on, you're sometimes a bit challenged in that you, you cannot apply the, the fairness thing because the rules are so preeminent and you, you can't you, you can't really say, well, you know, that's really that's really tough and unfair. Whereas in a sport like athletics, 
as black and white as we are, the referees have a huge amount of discretion to make decisions uh, based on fairness. So, Chelsea, certainly in your role, uh, things have changed somewhat in the AFL with the score review system. So can you take our listeners through how you and your team of goal umpires have had to adjust and change the way you go about things? One of the the things that uh, score review really highlights is the importance of communication uh, with your other umpires. So obviously you've got a, a situation where you're going to consult because there's some doubt around what you think the score is. And in that consultation process, it's really important that you're very clear about what you've seen, you're very clear about what you believe the score to be and that you're gathering all the data that you can before committing to a decision. So it, it really enhances the the communication between your teammates and that's something that, um, you know, after that initial teething process, I like I think like any process where you're um, learning exactly what's going to work best, um, I, I think we've managed to get it right. But I think just the other, the other thing that's really clear is um, – I think the, in, the instinctive nature when you introduce something like technology like the goal review, the instinctive nature of umpiring, I suppose, goes away a little bit in that initial teething period. Then you get used to the system. Um, you understand that you need to make the system part of that instinct. Um, so I think that's been the learning curve for us as a group. Um, but I don't know, any, any thoughts about the instinct element, Brian? Well, my, my question to you, Chelsea, would be whether either when it came in or or now, you know, you think that the existence of the, the technology second guesses your decision making or whether it gives you greater comfort because, you know, you're going to go away from the game. Yes, okay, my initial thought might have been wrong, but at least in terms of the outcome of the game, it's been correct. I think you're right. In terms of that comfort level, you know, our goal, you touched on fairness and, and that's the ultimate goal of the official. So our role is to get the score right and it's, you know, it can be great to, it's a great feeling to, to nail those tough decisions and get a really tight call and, and know that you've you've nailed it. Um, but at the end of the day, we're there to make the right score and um, that's not about ego. It's not about looking good. It, it's actually about doing and carrying out whatever process is going to get that result. Charles, any insight around stats on how the goal umpires performed last year or in previous years? Well, I do have a few stats here, actually. Um, so I know in, in last year's um, AFL sort of report of, of the umpires, we had 150 score reviews uh, throughout the year and, and 28 decisions were overturned. So I guess that's a situation where, you know, 28 decisions otherwise may not have been correct had we not involved the score review system. So I guess when you look at data like that, you, you've got to support a system that, that gets the right outcome. So that's all we have time for today. We'd like to thank Brian again for his valuable insights and especially around those of the increasing role of technology in the use of sports and the implications for officials. It'd be great to have you back at some stage to discuss you know, that role of empathy of the umpire. I thought that was um, really important. Um, I'm looking forward to the next show. A reminder, you can interact with us through our Facebook page, The Officials Podcast. Leave us a comment or question. We'd love to hear from you. And don't forget to rate us on whatever the platform it is you listen or download your podcasts from.